0: well we 're a couple minutes after time, so let 's uh, let 's go ahead and get started we 're going to be for the bulk of our time starting in on chapter eleven, which I suspect will take us a little while to work through. We have the superficial issue of head coverings, um, which really isn 't the main issue but is an issue we want to address underneath that is an order of creation issue, and that 's where I really think we need to spend most of our time because that 's the the art, the arch heresy of our of our day, and then aside from that, we've got a bunch of tangents that are interesting to consider. Um, in what sense might the angels, whoever they might be, be offended on account of women not wearing the symbol of authority on their heads? So we'll start into these questions, but like I said, we're going to take our time, and if uh, if we're not all in full agreement, at least we'll have exhausted all possibility of that. By the end of this, uh, by, by the end of our time in chapter 11, let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, for without your Holy Spirit we will not know or understand your good, perfect, and holy will. Enlighten our hearts and minds according to the truth of your word, that in that word we might see Christ shine forth, the very word who indeed becomes flesh for us. We pray your blessings upon each and every man gathered here, upon their families, to would enlighten their hearts and minds that they might serve their families, proclaiming and preaching Christ and him crucified to all, that all might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. So to wrap up chapter 10, if you recall back at uh, verse 23, that'll give you the section start for where Paul returns returns to and finalizes his argument regarding the food uh, sacrificed to idols, chapter 10, 23. Um, You remember he goes through these various various instances, (coughs) which it is permissible or not permissible, to eat food sacrificed to idols when we uh, let me just let me just do a quick read through hopefully with very little commentary so 23 all things are lawful he's quoting them but not all things are helpful all things are lawful but not all things build up so that is you have christian freedom but not in such a way that you would use that freedom in in an unhelpful manner you have christian freedom But recognizing that the the use of that freedom isn't necessarily going to lead to the building up. So you want it to be helpful, and you want it to build up. And those things should curtail your freedom. So vertically, in terms of the gospel, in terms of conscience, you have perfect freedom before God. But you want to curtail that freedom for the sake of love of your neighbor, or helpfulness, or building up. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of the other. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to eat dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Here's then the new material. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now, right off the bat here... uh, you've got a translation problem, and the ESV chooses a fork in the road, and I think it actually makes getting the the sense or the meaning more difficult. Remove the, the sort of logical connection of the word for in verse 29. So I do not mean your conscience, but his. And now you can see that these are rhetorical questions that he's imagining the Corinthians would ask or that he would use rhetorically against his own argument. Why should my liberty in Christ, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Likewise, and akin to that, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So Paul, how can you say these things When we have the principle of liberty, and when we have the principle that whatever is blessed by God, whatever we give thanks for, is immediately good for us, how can you say these things? Likewise, then in verse 31, there shouldn't be a paragraph break here, nor is it helpful to add in the word so and translate that word. Just read it as such Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense. To Jews, or to Greeks, or to the church of God. That is, to those who are outside of the church, who are Jews, those who are outside of the church, to Greeks, or to those inside of the church, to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own profit, but that of the many, that they may be saved. So what is Paul's answer to these rhetorical questions? Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's malformed conscience? Or why, if I know that these are good gifts of God and I receive them with thankfulness, would would you denounce me, Paul, for partaking of that for which I have given thanks? Paul's point is, yeah, indeed, you're free. Yeah, indeed, that food comes from God. But the whole point would be that you curtail these freedoms thus giving no offense to Jew or to Greek or to the church of God for the purpose that in not offending them you may reach them and they may be saved. Okay, Does that, does that make sense? That's the, that's the crystalline sense of, and conclusion of um, Paul's argument. Although, properly speaking, here's yet another little slice of evidence for why chapters and, and verses are a huge blessing but also a huge curse. 11.1 really belongs to the end of chapter 10. Look at this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That really belongs to the previous section, to the conclusion of chapter 10, that Paul's saying, look, I'm, I'm an apostle. I've spoken with the Lord. I'm the freest of all, and yet I curtail my freedom and liberty. For the sake of all, I become all things to all people. You remember that? So then, use me as your example. Be imitators of me, even as I am imitating Christ. Okay, and that's a a great transition, and it makes perfect sense with what follows in regard to head coverings. So for those of you just joining us, chapter 11, verse 1, and I'm just making the case that that belongs properly to chapter 10, to that material, although it does serve as a nice transition into... The New Material, chapter 11, verse 2. Let's pause there since we've wrapped up this discussion of, generally speaking, most broadly speaking, it's a discussion of audiophra. It's a discussion of Christian freedom. And then audiophra is, well, if it's not commanded or forbidden, does that just mean it's completely left to us? Yes and no. Yes, it's left to us, but no, not if that would affect the salvation of our neighbor. Then we are duty bound to curtail that freedom in Christ, to see it not as to see it as an audiophra proper, but not as an audiophra contextually, setting aside that freedom for the sake of winning others to Christ. Any thoughts? Everything okay? Yeah, please. Quick question. Um, is the person who has the weak conscience a brother or an unbeliever? I would say it doesn't matter. Because he includes, um, oops, went back too far. Because he includes in verse 32, Jews, Greeks, and the church of God. I, that covers everyone. And I think that's what it's... Other than um, to me, I would never go with this guy in his offering. I don't like that. Go over there, getting ready to sit down, and then he makes the same. Oh, this is awkward. Uh, just as you're looking at the lobster. And- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and the point is here: you're just you're trying to pay attention to the conscience of your neighbor. You're pro- trying to pay attention to what is going to best serve Christ. And if serving Christ is foregoing, in in your case, the lobster dinner, I mean, as Paul would say elsewhere, let me never eat lobster again. Right. So, setting aside setting aside Christian freedom, and we of course applied that to worship because this is the exact framework that Luther uses. Uh, to, in his discussion of worship is we have freedom before God. There's nothing in scripture that confines what worship ought to look like. I mean, unless you want to say word and sacrament, those elements are non-negotiable. That's the, that's the divine liturgy that is not adiaphora and that is in every time and place of Christianity. But the unique setting for that, what musical instruments, what musical tones and uh, melodies are used, all of that's a matter of indifference and so free. But then when we realize that we have to be in unity with each other, that means curtailing some of our freedoms. That means coming together for something that is uh, for the family, for the good. Okay, on to eleven. All right, I've gone back and forth for the better part of this afternoon in terms of how to present this, and I thought maybe maybe best to take the easiest first, or the lightest first, and that's the head coverings themselves. It's really not that big of a deal. Um, I, I know it is now, but the more we can get used to just flying in the face of the modern church, uh, the better off we're all going to be. <laughs> so... So I didn't bring in the commentary. Um, so if you look if you look up the question uh, should Christians today wear head coverings, you'll get some variation of this answer. No, because we're not living in first century Corinth. And then you'll get this whole argument that this idea of head coverings is bound to first century Corinth. Hmm. Is that the case? Ire- Irenaeus, second century in France, thinks head coverings apply there. Hippolytus, 170 to 235, Rome, thinks head coverings apply there. Tertullian, 155 to 220, Carthage. That's modern-day Tunisia. Africa. Thinks head coverings belong there. Clement of Alexandria. Do you know where Alexandria is? Yeah. (laughs) Egypt, 150 to 215. He thinks head coverings apply there. How about Chrysostom? Fourth century. Constantinople. Modern-day Turkey. He thinks head coverings belong there. And on you go. Augustine. Hippo. Africa. Fifth century. He thinks... Head coverings belong there. Same with every major church father all the way up to Luther, Germany, 16th century. Head coverings belong there. How about here in America, all the Lutherans? All of them. uh, Up until uh, what we'll talk about next. How about uh, Calvin, Switzerland, 16th century? Yep. Yep. Head coverings there. Fascinating how all these people... So surely what happened then to us in the 20th century is we were all in good faith and not under any social duress at all. We just discovered in the Bible that the church had been wrong for 1,900 years. That's what happened, isn't it? Yeah, I think not. So I've got no problem whatsoever, even though I'm like a voice in the wilderness and even though I probably sound like a kook to most modern people in the church... I will gladly stand with uh, countless church fathers from all around the known world in saying, yeah, head coverings are part of the universal uh, teaching of Scripture. Um, What is not adiaphora is that women should be subject to men. What is not adiaphora is that head coverings in the Christian congregation show forth that submission visually. What is adiaphora is what percentage of the head is covered. <laughs> so, I don't really I don't really frankly care if it's a a full hijab where we've got to just see the slits of the eyes or if it's a little uh, you know, wrap tied around the a head, a headband or something. I don't really care if it's a bow on the head. Um, I I don't see 1 Corinthians 11 or any other part of the scriptures talk about what percentage of the head needs to be covered but I do see Paul unequivocally saying that the head needs to be covered, and I see 2,000 years of church history from all fathers of all times and places agreeing with this up until the late 19th and especially the 20th century. So uh, first-wave feminism usually dated to the middle of the 19th century, um, largely based around women's suffrage, 1848. But the uh, Declaration of Sentiments, you can look this up, and it's basically an attack on patriarchy in the church and in the state. It's an attack on male headship in the church and in the state. It's a satanic document. Go read it for yourself. Uh, The Declaration of Sentiments. Okay, wave two, uh, second wave feminism, usually dated 1963 to the 1980s is really where head coverings are lost. So Betty Friedan, the feminine mystique. um, And then here you have feminism turn like, okay, well, we've got the vote. Now we're going to go against, hey, women don't need to be wives and mothers. Women should be workers. So they can, uh, so this, and obviously pro-abortion is a huge part of this movement. Um, five years into this second wave, you have the, uh, in 1968, you have the National Organization for Women, now. And they have a resolution on head coverings. 1968, this is when it becomes mainstream and when we lose head coverings in the States. Let me read this to you. Whereas the wearing of a head covering by women at religious services is a custom in many churches... And whereas it is a symbol of subjection within these churches, now, NOW recommends that all chapters undertake an effort to have all women participate in a, quote, national unveiling, end quote, by sending their head coverings to the task force chairman immediately. At the spring meeting of the Task Force on Women in Religion, these veils will then publicly be burned to protest the second-class status of women in all churches. Okay, that was that. And all the men in the church crossed their legs and allowed this to happen. And here we are, me sounding like a kook, (laughs) for saying what the church has always thought and always believed because we all followed now. Uh, the, the origin, then, of this is, is, uh, is just uh, no more glorious than that. And the source of these ideas, plainly part of a satanic trend. And then all the, oh, this is just first century Corinth-type stuff, put on after the fact as a very weak, astonishingly weak attempt to justify our capitulation to a satanic move within culture. Okay, so head coverings, yeah, I think pretty easy. That's why I thought we did, we just tackle those first and get it out of the way. Now, if you want to go with the present majority, which is actually a tyranny of the historical minority, you can, you can be my guest. But I think your company, you'd rather, you'd rather have as your company Luther and Augustine and Chrysostom and Clement and Tertullian and Hippolytus and Irenaeus than you would the authors of the the authors of the Resolution on Head Coverings, National Organization for Women. Because kind of, uh, I'm thinking right now of the queen before she passed away. She always had head coverings. She was never anywhere inside or out without a hat that matched the rest of her outfit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still around. You can still find it. And in various places in the world, non-Western places in particular, you can still find it. Uh, It's still going on, for sure. Um, So what do we do? I I think we teach. We teach in gentleness, but we teach without compromise. We teach boldly and confidently uh, what the Word of God says. Um, Maybe we save our anger and and our wrath not for the particularly not for the women in our churches who don't know better but for those for those men that do <laughs> and have deceived themselves and deceived countless others or those men that should if they uh, aspire to the office of the holy ministry but fail to teach this this very clear part of scripture um maybe that's where our wrath and our vehemence ought to go um but towards the women towards you know our mothers and our and our wives and our daughters uh I I think we shouldn't expect them to just right now they've they've spent their whole lives generations taught and culturated otherwise. I think it'd be foolish to not recognize that and to not operate um the way we operate in all other aspects of love where there's where there's error um and not not stubborn, hard hearted, ill intentioned error, and that's with gentleness. And uh, with our own self control, with our own respect toward women, um, as we set this forward. Um, so, so please, please don't go home and berate your say. Hey, honey, new rule <laughs> this this Sunday. Um, you know, unless unless you think that that's uh, unless you think that that's probably the most fruitful within your domain, um, then go for it. But as a general rule, I don't hear me as suggesting that. Um, hey honey what do you think about this hey did you know what i learned tonight about the origins of this (laughs) that kind of thing yes sir does this not apply to men as well not wearing head coverings or you know we should be wearing head coverings does that apply as well for us or just for well let's get into it how about that okay so uh our goal here will be to go very quickly over the top of Paul's argument to just see what he says about head coverings and then to delve into his argument, which is the order of creation. And again, as I see it, the head coverings are kind of like the, the symptom of, of the bigger issue, which is a loss of the order of creation. So that's why I'd like to spend more time and, and energy. Um, the head coverings are really um, kind of like the, the fruit of a tree gone bad. Um, Whereas if we make the tree good, the fruit will be good again. So let's go through it quickly with an eye toward head coverings, and then we'll return and go through it more deeply with an eye toward Paul's argument, the order of creation. Now I commend you, verse 2, because you remember me in everything and maintain, this is uh, catecheta, this is the um, word from which we get uh, catechism. So the listening and repeating uh, that's the word that's behind maintain. So you remember me in everything and maintain are catechized, catechize one another with the traditions, even as I tradition them to you. Here we see um, not not a distinction that we sometimes use between Scripture and tradition, and tradition being something that's not scriptural. That distinction isn't in play here. Paul is saying the tradition is the Scripture, is the teaching. So what he has handed to them, the deposit of the faith, so to speak, they are maintaining by and large. And so he's commending them insofar as they've maintained that. Obviously, there are problems in Corinth that he's going to address, but he wants to commend them for maintaining the traditions, even as I tradition them to you. Verse 3, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, so God is the head of Christ, who is the head of the man, who is the head of the woman, particularly in view the husband and the wife. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So should we wear hats in church? No. That would be, that would be the other side of the coin is that men ought not to come into the church and pray with their heads covered. And everything I would say about women wearing their, uh, you know, wearing head coverings just applies on the other side that men ought not wear head coverings. Now we can talk about prophecy a little bit uh, down the road here, so just hold that because that's not preaching as such or engaging, engaging in the capital P prophetic office or capital P prophetic task. We'll touch on that in just a minute. So not to lose the forest for the trees, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So covering the head equals the shaven head. Now sure in the original context this was disgrace and this was sometimes done in some places as a punishment for women who were caught in uh, prostitution. As part of their punishment their heads would be shaved. So, a shaved head is generally seen as a shame on a woman. Now, one thing to uh, look at so, Paul does mention praying and prophesying, men praying and prophesying, and then uh, women praying and prophesying, right? Now, if we, if we jump forward in this document real quick, we can clarify something. So, 1 Corinthians 14, so we want to go forward three chapters to 13... Wait a minute, did I write down the wrong reference? No, 14, yeah. 14, 14, 34. Okay, so obviously we're we're jumping ahead here. And let's look at let's look at 26 and just get a run up. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, I know there's a whole bunch of intrigue in all of that. Let's not get into all that right now. Otherwise, we'll have a Bible study on 1 Corinthians 14. As in all the churches of the saints, verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission As the law, the Old Testament Scripture, also says, If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, then, as we go back to chapter 11, and we read of men praying and prophesying, women praying and prophesying, we can be sure that this is a kind of prophecy, that at least on the part of the women, is not taking place in the church. Otherwise, Paul's contradicting himself. So. so, what kind of prophesying could a woman be doing? If a prophecy, if a prophesying is any kind of explication of the Word of God or application of the Word of God to the present circumstances, a woman could do this in a general public venue like Priscilla did. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila were quote unquote street evangelists, but would um, prophesy, teach in public. Likewise, uh, older women, we've already seen, are admonished to teach the younger women what the Word of God says. That's a form of prophecy as the, in the wide sense, as Paul's using it here. And likewise, women to their uh, to their families, to their children in particular, but probably in most instances around the dining room table, if the woman wants to explicate or apply some portion of God's word generally to the in, within the home, who's gonna be what Christian husband's going to object to that? Right? The key here would be seeing the consistency between Paul in First Corinthians 14 and 1 Corinthians eleven that when we're talking about women and men prophesying, or at least women in this case, we're not talking about them prophesying within the context of church or within the formal church service. Okay, So I know that that's an aside, but we may as well cover it as we're going along. So what have we discovered so far? That on account of this headship, and on account of this order of creation, which we'll examine later, Paul says equally that a man should not pray or prophesy with his head covered, otherwise he dishonors his head. Who's his head? Christ. So his rationale for having his head uncovered is deference and submission to Christ. And then the other side of that coin is verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Who's that? The husband since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So she's showing a lack of, you know, in the same way, the man would be showing a lack of deference to or submission to Christ. She's showing a lack of deference or submission to her husband. And then verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair Or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now we'll return back to that, but this is the kind of asymmetry we see between the sexes. So the radical egalitarianism of our age says men and women are just the same and everything's got to be entirely equal or complementary across the board. This part of Scripture is one of many that argues that's not the case. Man is uniquely the image and glory of God. Woman is uniquely the glory of man. Paul goes on to explain why that is the case and we'll go quickly over this and return to it later for man was not made from woman but woman from man neither was man created for woman but woman for man so very frequently you'll you'll hear this in in Christian counseling that the man is to be the helpmate of his woman and the woman is to be the helpmate of her man that's completely unbiblical and completely contrary to Paul, the woman is to be a helpmate to the husband, not vice versa, not the husband to the wife. Now, does that mean the man should be generally unhelpful? No, <laughs> no I don't think that's what, you know, so I say, hey will, you, hey, will you reach the butter knife for me? <laughs> no, because St. Paul forbids it. Uh, these are misapplications and misunderstandings. Um, what we're talking about here is the general order of creation, the general order. Frame of how we understand our relationship roles, how we understand how marriage is constituted. Now, if if you want to if you want to sort of mentally work through this a little, because you don't like Saint Paul or you don't like Rhodey or whatever the case may be, uh, you can you can go to Ephesians where Paul likens the marital relationship to Christ and His Church and a husband and wife, and just kind of play that game back and forth. So is Christ a helpmate to the church? Perish the thought. Is the church a helpmate to Christ? Yes, absolutely. He's taken the lead. We're following him and following his mission and supporting and doing and submitting ourselves and obeying and working to further his goals. Are we not? That's the nature of the church. And that's the nature and orientation of a wife to her husband. Okay, So um, you have to understand that there's not a kind of symmetry there. There's an asymmetry, and there's not a complementarianism. There's a hierarchy and ordering. Okay, more on that to come. But Paul says, this is the rationale, or verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Then he adds, because of the angels. Now, not to lose the forest for the trees, but Paul is saying the angels are present as they gather together. We can kind of sort out what that gathering together looks like. Part of the issue is that the gathering together is a lot lengthier and a lot more complicated than our gathering together uh, after 2,000 years of church history. Our gathering together is pretty streamlined. We've got the pastor speaking publicly publicly. He's called and ordained. We've got the hymnody. We've got everything squared away. It all takes place usually in an hour and 15 minutes or less. Not so the early church and not so various places in the early church where these can be all-day affairs. And we're going to see that come up later in chapter 11 in the context of their celebration of the Lord's Supper. If we don't understand that their worship is, generally speaking, less organized than ours less streamlined than ours. We're going to get lost in how this could possibly happen. But you've got a divine service or a gathering of the church for the sake of church that spans hours and hours. That'll become all the more evident in the latter part of this chapter. So that'll kind of help you understand, like, could there be a time, let's say on on the Sunday gathering of the saints, where women could prophesy, not over not over men, but or... In a, in a more casual setting, yeah, that could definitely happen apart from what we would call the divine service proper, the formal public preaching of the word. So that's part of like, you know, what's hard for us to translate here as to what's going on. What we don't want to lose sight of though, is that Paul himself says that angels are gathered there at the Christian community. So what do we say in our liturgy with angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven? Where does that come from? Well, in part, here, where Paul acknowledges that the angels, the godly angels, are gathered around. Um, why might the godly angels be offended? Well, by the subversion of the order of creation. That's the simplest answer, is they see women in rebellion and they see a breakdown of of that beautiful creation that god has made that beautiful ordering of creation and they're offended at this so it's i don't think it has to be any more complicated than that now in the history of interpretation it's been made very complicated because there's all kinds of theories put forward about the angels everything from what i've just submitted that good angels would be scandalized by the disrespect for the order of creation To the good angels, this is a theory put forward, to the good angels possibly being made to fall, to fall into some sort of lust over the beauty of the women. Obviously complicated and problematic, as you might gather. Um, Possibly fallen angels, now this is harder to imagine that fallen angels would come gather around the Church of God, but that fallen angels would take advantage of this and try to further drive this sinful wedge between husbands and wives and who knows what else. Angels have also been put forward as pastors because angel simply means messenger. So it could be for the sake of pastors not being scandalized. (laughs) I don't know. I find that a little far-fetched. Angels have also been put forward as pious men who are called angels to sort of shame the women. I don't know. I find that far-fetched, too. And then I think the ESV study note puts congregational visitors, that is, people sent to observe and report that they could be offended. All right. Well, I think that the view that I've put forward for you is probably the simplest, easiest, and most likely to be correct. But Paul bringing to mind that the worship isn't done in a vacuum. It isn't done just with with what your eyes see. Father is there, Christ is there, man is there, women are there, and so are all the angels. Now, an even more beautiful picture of this—if if you you'll permit a quick field trip—keep um, your keep your hand here, a bookmark here. Let's go to Hebrews twelve. This will further tie into our previous discussion of worship. And so, if you if you disagreed with me there, or Want to know more about these angels, the nature of worship? uh, Hebrews 12 will give you a fantastic glimpse into this. And at Hebrews 12, we'll just pick up at verse 18. Here the author writes. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. What's in view here? Sinai and the first covenant. This is the delivery of the covenant uh, through Moses. So what may be touched is that mountain. Now, if you touched it, you were going to die. And it's also physical and obvious to the senses, and that factors in. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages uh, be spoken to them. All of that is biblical descriptive of Sinai and the first covenant. Verse 24, they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I mean, imagine this, Moses, who had been face to face with God in the burning bush. I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. Now, this is a contrast of the two covenants. So if you know that's the first covenant, you already know what the second covenant is, don't you? The cup of Jesus, of his blood shed on the cross, poured into the chalice for you. That's Mount uh, Calvary, or Mount Zion, excuse me, Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the, is the mount of God's deliverance. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That's the mount upon which Christ is sacrificed. His blood flows forth. That's where you have come to. So he's saying this to Christians. This is how we ought to consider our worship. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. You know, this is why in the liturgy we say this is the word of the Lord. It's not like anyone was in doubt. We already said, hey, this is the Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And then we say, this is the word of the Lord, like just in case you forgot. No, we're saying, you have just heard the living voice of the living God. And then we say, thanks be to God. So you have come To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That is, the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, Where does the heavenly Jerusalem come and reside forever? Do you remember? At the climax of Revelation, Jerusalem descends from above. This is the end of the book. Descends from above, and we all indwell heavenly Jerusalem forever and ever. It's like the capital city of the new heavens and the new earth you are already entering that reality when you go into worship. Now, but not yet. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering. That's why people say, how many, how many attend your church on Sunday? Well, I've never preached less to myriads upon myriads. Human beings, maybe, uh, maybe a few hundred every Sunday, But innumerable angels and festal gathering are all around as we worship. By the way, that's why you want to take some pride in your worship, especially as men and as leaders of your families. I don't care if you can't sing. I can't sing worth a darn. Whatever you do, do it loud. (laughs) Do it in a manly way. Uh, Do it in a a way that the, the angels aren't going to be like... The angels don't snicker if you've got a bad voice. The angels snicker if you're a wuss about it. If You're not manly enough to let your voice be heard. So there's angels infest together. You know, there's nothing worse than a weak amen. And I'm guilty of this, too, because we're all enculturated into it. But the amen is our time to shine as a congregation, as a people of God. That's our response to God. That should be, you know, when we say glory to you, O Christ, or praise be to thee, O Lord, that should be aggressive celebratory okay so yeah we've got a lot all of us together have a lot to do in worship don't we recognizing that the innumerable angels and festal gathering are all around us now if they're in festal gathering we should be in festal gathering as well and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven who's that That's the saints. That's, as we say in the liturgy, angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. That's the whole company. They're the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What comes next? And to the sprinkled blood. Now, first covenant, sprinkled blood was of bulls. Second covenant, Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. So the sprinkled blood is the blood of Jesus sprinkled upon us. That speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What did the blood of Abel cry out for? Vengeance. The blood of Christ cries out for forgiveness, for our pardon. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they do not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. In other words, whose voice are you hearing in the divine service? Or as Paul said, or as Christ said to His apostles, "Whoever hears you hears me." So it's the voice from heaven. You know, in that vision of Isaiah, where the seraphim he sees the vision of heaven, and the seraphim grabs the tongs and takes the burning coal from the altar and places it to the lips of Isaiah, and we think, "Oh, wouldn't that be cool?" Rodi's such a letdown compared to a seraphim with six wings. Ah, yeah, but you're not seen with the eyes of faith. Because it's not a seraphim with six wings taking a coal. It's the Lord himself taking his very body from the altar and putting it to your lips. It's infinitely higher than what Isaiah experienced, but accessible only to the eyes of faith. That's why the church from the earliest days put the Sanctus, the song of the seraphim in Isaiah 6, as part of the communion liturgy. Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth heaven and earth are full of your glory. That's what the angels were singing in Isaiah 6. That's why we sing it in the liturgy to remind ourselves that we're in the presence of that same divine throne, that same living God, those same seraphim and angelic beings. And what's being given to us is not mediated by angels, but mediated by Christ himself. Not merely a coal from the altar, but the very body and blood of the Son of God given to us. So, I mean, mind-blowing stuff unbelievably mind-blowing stuff. And if you, if you understand that, that that's what's going on in the worship, because you understand the Bible, then that's going to rule out a whole bunch of nonsense worship practices that go on in the church today, isn't it? Okay, maybe that's enough on that, since this is a field trip after all, and not a study of Hebrews. So then back to 10... Paul's saying, look, given that this is where you are when you gather together, then that is why, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, lest these holy ones be scandalized by, by effectively her irreverence. I mean, does this sound like audiophora so far? Does it it sound like something bound only to Corinth so far? Okay, 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Contrary to the declaration of sentiments, contrary to the feminine mystique, contrary to the resolution on head coverings, contrary to all of feminism, Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, remember Eve taken from Adam's side, so man is now born of woman. That's true. Every last one of us have mothers. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a, woman, if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. So Paul's saying there's this natural covering that even God himself puts upon a woman. And when a man tries to grow that covering, everyone says, and not in a good way usually, dude looks like a lady. Verse 16 is, is really the nail in the coffin. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have, we have no such practice. That is, we're not, you, you won't find us in agreement with you. So if anyone is contentious and advocates that women should pray with their heads uncovered, just know we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Again, does that sound like, just in Paul's mind, does that sound like adiaphora to you? I, I cannot see it. I cannot see it. I think Paul would be like, did you listen to anything I just said? Your your clarification, does a woman or the wife always have her head covered when she leaves the house or just when she's going to church? So, again, this is part of the complexity it would, it would not, to answer your question straightforwardly, it would not necessitate her head being covered outside of, of church. That's free and, and permitted, generally speaking. Um, inside of church, she should have her head covering. But again, when we think of church, immediately we think of the hour, hour and 15 minutes in divine service. Church would, if we expanded, I know this is a bit anachronistic, but if you expanded it all the way through like Sunday school hour for us, kind of maybe even put in a potluck, <laughs> had a bunch of hanging out. That's closer to what church is. Women should have their head covered then. Um, do women prophesy, that is, do they teach the scriptures uh, in the context of Sunday school? Absolutely. What about having coffee? And the women are instructing each other, or one wim- woman is is prophesying, teaching the other women around. Does that kind of thing happen? Absolutely. So I think that would be a, a sort of closer approximation to the context of Paul, where women can pray and prophesy within the larger gathering of the church on the Lord's Day, but not in the divine service particular, not in the formal proclamation of the church, which is why then 1 Corinthians 14 comes in, that a woman ought to be silent. If she has any questions, she ought to ask her husband, she ought to listen in submission, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. I think. I mean, I don't think. I know that that's the way to harmonize those, and that's the way uh, the, West, the entire Western tradition, for example, is taking that. East too. East 2. Yes, sir. How does the Nazarite vial uh, fit? Isn't that where the men let their hair grow? Or? Yeah, it's the exception proves the norm. It's this wild exception that a razor ought not touch the head, but only under these precise and very stipulated Uh, this arrangement of the Nazarite vow. So it stands out as being an act of extremity, along with the others. What is it that you can't touch alcohol? Um, I can't remember all the parts of the Nazarite vow. There was a temporary uh, vow and a permanent vow, and Paul took that temporary vow for a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's just the exception proves the norm. Okay, so any questions on head covering per se? Or maybe any of the other details regarding... uh, Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, please, sir. Thank you. Um, Yes. uh, Does uh, Luther talk about this in any of the catechisms? Or it was just so accepted back then they didn't really have to go into it? Yes, that's true. Luther talks about it um, outside of the catechisms, but not a lot, because it is just common practice. Okay. Uh, in the Book of Concord, you, as far as I know, there's only this one comment. I'll read it for you. This is from uh, Article 28 on Church Authority. What then are we to think of the Sunday rites and similar things in God's house? We answer that it is lawful for bishops or pastors to make ordinances so that things will be done orderly in the church, but not to teach that we merit grace or satisfaction for sins. Okay, so if a bishop or a pastor in the church is going to lay down any ordinance and say, hey, this is what we're going to do, um, and it's apart from Scripture, it's above and beyond Scripture, that's the point, this is what we're going to do, he can't bind salvation to that, he can't bind consciences. That's the first and most important principle. He can't teach that we merit grace or make satisfaction for sins by obeying this. So they continue, consciences are not bound to regard them as necessary services and to think that it is a sin to break them without offense to others. So in 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul concludes that women should cover their heads in the congregation. And in 1 Corinthians 14.30, that interpreters be heard in order, in the church, and so on. So the argument being these are ordinances, and they should be obeyed, no one may teach that consciences are bound, that they're necessary for salvation. It continues, it is proper that the churches keep such ordinances for the sake of love. Notice how we've talked about that, like binding our freedoms, keeping order, keeping ordinances for the sake of unity and for the sake of love of the neighbor. So that's the larger principle here. It is proper that the churches keep such ordinance for the sake of love and tranquility to avoid giving offense to another so that, in, so that all things be done in the churches in order and without confusion, First uh, 1 Corinthians 1440. So as you can tell from these references, 1430, 1440, we're going to come up against these principles again. It is proper to keep such ordinances so long as consciences are not burdened to think that they are necessary to salvation or regard it as sin if they are changed without offending others. For instance, no one will say that a woman sins who, here you go, Radford, goes out in public with her head uncovered as long as no offense is given. No. So that will give you a flavor for um, where the Lutherans themselves were at in the 16th century on those questions. Pastor? Yes, sir. um, It seems to me that you've made the case that the same reason that Paul lays down in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I believe, for women not being pastors, is based in creation and the order of creation, Mm -hmm. is the same argument being used by Paul here. Mm -hmm. in this uh, passage. And I'm wondering, uh, do the seminaries, do our seminaries teach this, both of them or either of them? And um, how ultimately can this, could it change? Could it ever change? Do you see it? Yeah, I think it can absolutely change. Um, Obviously, God's Word is powerful to affect all manner of change. And so really, I think that's our goal is, you know, as men, is to say, hey, this is what God's Word says. Let that Word have its effect. Let that Word change hearts and minds. That, that Word is, in fact, more powerful than the sword, <laughs> more powerful than force, more but more powerful than coercion of any kind. So let that, let that Word have its effect. I think that's the first thing we can do. Um, the short answer is when I was at seminary, no. It was not taught that. I have good reason to believe that in in the previous several generations, this has not been taught, or generation at least. Yeah, let me hold it there. Generation, this was not taught at the seminary. Um, What we'll do, we're going to meet next week. I see we've got one minute left. My alarm's about to go off, so I don't torment you anymore uh, by going longer. But what we'll do next week is we'll delve into the order of creation. We'll look at... Uh, Genesis 1. And maybe if we have time and desire, we'll look at 1 Timothy 2 that you mentioned, Brad, and, and really take in the order of creation. Because as I started at the outset, really the head covering business is a symptom of, a, of not, no longer understanding and no longer confessing the order of creation. And really that stems, by and large, and of course feminism is what's done this to us, but then we've forgotten or gotten too cowardly in terms of just reading Genesis as it speaks. So you'll remember that Paul says something that is, is very scandalous to ears today, that the woman was deceived and the man was not deceived. So the nature of the sin of Eve and the nature of the sin of Adam are very different. And we'll go look at where Paul's getting that and then what that means for the, ch- for the church uh, throughout history and, and up to our present time. Okay, that's it then out of, uh, for the sake of, of your well-being and mine. Let's uh, close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread,